morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? It's like the first time I've actually looked up from the screen, so it's nice to actually see people in here. And that is one of our first announcements. We are back in person, yes. Can I get an amen for sure? So this is obviously very exciting. We are back in person. That's really all the announcement is. If you want to come in person, come be with us. Join us in celebration of this community that we're building together. If you're online, you're welcome to come, obviously, as well. And as always, if you feel safer being at home, then you can watch us from online as well. Next up, we have call and response coming up on Thursday, February 24th. This is happening at 6.30 p.m. on Zoom. And this is kind of like our version of a Bible study. So it's not really a Bible study, but more of a conversation, more of a chance to dive deeper into these texts together in community. And what I love about this is that the texts that we're reading about and studying and listening to in the service is also what we're doing during call and response. So it's a chance to go deeper, which is great. And then lastly, we've got not too many announcements today, which is nice. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, and we rely on the gifts and donations from people just like you. So if you'd like, you can donate online, you can scan the QR code, or we have this very new fancy giving box at the back through those doors that Jason has been working very hard on, and <laughs> it looks beautiful. So that is all the announcements we have for today. Enjoy the rest of the service. Well, good morning, everybody. For those of you who don't know, uh, my name is Jason Coker. I'm the pastor here. It's good to have you with us. Today, I'm going to continue our series on wisdom. We have now for about six weeks been immersed in a teaching series on what it means for us as Christians to pursue the wisdom that we learn in Scripture, and what we're doing with that series is unpacking the three books that are really uh, the center of the ancient Hebrew wisdom tradition, which are Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And we spent the whole month of January unpacking Proverbs, and I gave you my perspective on Proverbs, that Proverbs is conventional wisdom, that it tells us uh, especially those of us who are younger, who are growing up, who are less mature, that it is extraordinarily important to learn to get up every day and work hard and take responsibility for yourself. And if you do what's right and play by the rules and work hard and are honest and tell the truth, then things will work out for you in life. And then I told you last week that Job comes along and sort of blows that notion out of the water that you might have noticed that it's not always true that if you get up every day and go to work and work hard and are honest and tell the truth and play by the rules that things work out for you. They don't always work out for you. And uh, Chelsea just gave us an excellent uh, example of how that is a reality in the lives of whole groups of people in the United States. So last week we jumped into the book of Job. We're going to continue with that. It's going to take us four Sundays to finish Job. So today we're going to continue on what's sort of an extended introduction to the book of Job. I want to share with you what I'm noticing in these passages and then invite you to 
reflect on what you might be getting from them as well. Before we do, would you just pray with me as we jump into this together? God, we thank you so much for today, for another opportunity for us to gather, to lift our voices, uh, to open our hearts and our minds to you, to offer our prayers, to sing songs in celebration of your goodness. to enjoy the community that you've drawn us to together, to lean into a collective expression of what it means to be good news in response to your goodness. We pray today that you would open up these words for us, that we would gain some fresh perspective on what it means to lean into a life of wisdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I told you that the book of Job begins by introducing us to the idea of complexity, that Proverbs is uh, conventional wisdom, that it simplifies life for us. And that is extraordinarily useful to us when we're less mature. But at some point, we discover that life is more complicated than that. And today I want to pick it up and share with you a second thing that I think Job does to cause us to sort of interrogate conventional wisdom and sort of screw up our lives, you know, for a little while while we reflect on what wisdom really looks like. That's, I think, what Job does very effectively, sort of messes up our faith, and then we have to try to work out the mess after that. I want to read to you from uh, Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. This is probably the hardest passage of Job because it doesn't paint a very flattering picture of God. Uh, And as one of the hardest passages of Job, it's also, I think, one of the more difficult passages in the Hebrew Bible. So here we go. We're going to read it. Are you ready? Job chapter 1, verse 6 says, One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now this is after, of course, our introduction to Job, where it says that Job is basically the most righteous man on the planet, And everything was going very well for him. In other words, Job was the embodiment of Proverbs. He played by the rules, was honest, straightforward, worshipped with integrity, and everything was going well for him. He was rich, had an amazing family who liked to be together, and he would, you know, sacrifice on their behalf every single day just in case they made mistakes. So we pick it up now in verse 6. There's been a shift in the story away from Job to this sort of extended dialogue between God and Satan in heaven. 7 says this, The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? I'm going to continue reading because I think Satan's sort of larger indictment here is important. Verse 10, he says, Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has And he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, and this is the hard part, very well. All that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The rest of the story, uh, at least here in chapter 2, this sort of opening framing of this extended epic poem that is Job, regales us with the story of Satan destroying everything that Job has. All of his children are killed in various calamities, and when that's not enough to make Job turn away from God, Satan goes ahead and afflicts him with illness. And so this is part of what I mean when I say this is one of the harder passages in the Hebrew Bible, because it tends to depict God as this sort of cruel and capricious God in the sky who's willing to torture and torment us in order to make a point. And that is, frankly, not any kind of God that I'd be interested in worshiping. My guess is you might feel the same way. I want to ask you for a moment to maybe set aside your preconceived ideas about what the Bible is. Because what I've found is that more often than not, many of us have been taught that the Bible is an explicit revelation of who God is, what God does, and how God acts. In other words, we're taught that every single word and phrase and passage and paragraph and book in the Bible is a peek behind the curtain of heaven where we get to see what God is really like. And if this is what God is really like, then you would be justified in rejecting that God. Instead, I want to suggest to you that that is not what Job is trying to do. For example, the word Satan is a problem. Because, of course, when we hear the word Satan, if we're raised in Christianity, we tend to think of that, like, red-colored guy with horns and a tail, you know, like the devil running around trying to harm us and, and destroy our lives. And that is not who Satan is in this ancient Hebrew tale. The word translated Satan here really just means accuser. From the context of the story, it's clear that this is one of God's own people doing God's will. This tradition does not in any way understand our modern notion of the devil as somebody who is God's enemy. Instead, this reveals somebody who is a part of God's own court, working on God's behalf. And so this is not... The devil, at least in the way that we tend to think of the devil. Some churches and some traditions, some Christians are obsessed with the devil. I don't know if you know that. I spent the better part of my 20s in a church that was obsessed with the devil, concerned with where the devil was at any given moment, how the devil was tormenting your life. Through all the various circumstances of one's life, it was a kind of cosmology of demons and this kind of cosmology where you see that the invisible world behind what we see is somehow populated with all kinds of cruel beings who are constantly at work trying to tear apart your life has its benefits. One of those benefits is the devil made me do it. (laughs) 
Anytime you behave in a way that is not good for other people, if you're a part of that kind of church, it's awfully convenient to say, I'm sorry it wasn't me, the devil made me do it. Uh, It just so happens if you are a white guy in charge, that excuse works really well. Um, What's ironic about that is that it's completely the opposite of sort of conventional wisdom of Proverbs, which teaches us that we are responsible for our own failings. And so in those kinds of churches, when you run around and you attribute the devil or demonic activity to every single thing that goes wrong in your life, from weeds growing in your garden to your water pump breaking on your car to the illnesses that you suffer, petty or terminal. What this does is absolve you of any responsibility whatsoever for any bad behavior. The other benefit of this kind of demonic cosmology is that there's a devil behind every door. All of life's difficulties in this kind of perspective become the fault of some kind of demonic presence in your life. You spend the rest of your life trying to figure out how it is that the devil is somehow, you know, ruining every opportunity you have. Every job that you don't get is the devil's fault. Every person who treats you poorly is somehow an expression of the devil. Every temptation that pops into your head is somehow by the influence of the devil. I think it's understandable why this would be useful, especially for folks who have no real power or control in their lives. When you suffer a lot, When you have very little money, you have very little power, very little agency. When you have very little access to the ability to actually advocate meaningfully for your own life, your own well-being, it is extraordinarily psychologically relieving to be able to blame it on the devils that are invisible behind every door. It gives you a sense of control. And there are entire books and seminars and doctrines and theologies built around giving you control over those invisible entities. Uh, Spoiler alert, none of it works. Yeah, I know, I've been there, I've tried that, I've done that. I've taught the classes. You are not in control of all of the calamities that happen in your life. The third benefit of this is the devil made you do it. See, the devil made me do it as a convenient excuse, but the devil made you do it as a very effective way of controlling. Very effective way of keeping power and manipulating power and keeping people in their place. This is not what Job teaches. The irony here is that the whole purpose of the book of Job is not to blame Job for what happens to him. It is to use this framing of God in heaven being responsible for these acts of God. The whole point of that is to tell a story that makes it abundantly clear that the person who's suffering is not at fault. By framing the story in this way, by making God and God's own minions responsible for Job's suffering, it becomes 
entirely unjustified suffering. If you have an insurance policy on your home like I do, there's a clause in there for acts of God. The insurance company doesn't necessarily believe that God is actually tormenting you if your house burns to the ground. It's simply a helpful legal way of saying it's not your fault. It also lets them off the hook in certain situations. So this is the point of this framing. It's not to tell us that God is capricious or evil or delights in tormenting you just to make a point. The point is to tell a story that asks a crucial question about the moral life. And by framing it this way, by making it abundantly clear that Job's suffering is not Job's fault, we can now ask the crucial question, what is the point of being good if being good does not guarantee a good life? We see this question in Satan's accusation, verse 9. Then Satan answered Job, does, God fear, or does Job fear God for nothing? Of course Job worships you. You've given him everything. You've made him rich. You've given him property. You've given him an amazing family. You have put a fence around his life and guarded him from all possible harm. In other words, you've done exactly what we think Proverbs says you're going to do. Why would Job fear? So God says, so let's see what happens. And all these things are taken away, and Job continues to persist in doing what is right and doing what is good. We find this question asked a second time, only this time by Job's wife, who for some reason is still alive. You're not the first person to make that joke in Christian history. Job chapter 2, verse 9 says, Then his wife said to him, this is after Job lost his entire household except for his wife, and then became ill with boils all over him, is suffering and in pain. His wife says to him, chapter 2, verse 9, Do you still persist in integrity? Curse God and die. Other renditions of this say, Are you still clinging to your innocence? What's the point? What's the point of doing what is right? What's the point of having integrity? What's the point of being good and righteous and true if it gets you nothing? This is the question at the heart of Job. When we come away from the book of Proverbs believing that doing what is good and right and true all the time will guarantee a good life for us, and then we grow up and are hit squarely between the eyes with the reality of life. If we are a thoughtful person, this question will occur to us. Why am I doing this? When I see so many people around me who are doing what is wrong, who are lying and cheating and stealing and abusing their privileges and yet seem to get ahead, what is the point? Asking this question is important. Not answering it today is even more important. Dang it. I will answer this question, 
by week four. <laughs> At least I'll give you my answer to this question. I'm not going to answer it today because instead I want to point out to you that by just asking this question, another reality is revealed. And that reality is this, that at the heart of conventional wisdom, at the heart of Proverbs wisdom, at the heart of conventional morality is a transactional self-interest. I do what's right in order to get something good. I fulfill God's commandments so that God will bless me. I'm decent to my neighbor so that he won't turn his music up too loud or smoke his pot too long after 4.20 p.m. This is getting very personal. I apologize. <laughs> Conventional morality is transactional. The worst example of this, the the biggest problem with a transactional morality is that we turn into each other into utilitarian objects for our own gain. I treat you a certain way so that you will give me something in return. Most of the time that's innocent. When I go to fill my gas tank at the gas station, I give them money so that I can put gas in my car. That's okay. I can't necessarily have a love relationship with every human being I have to interact with in this world. I don't have enough capacity for that. So cash frees me from that obligation. But when we start to treat each other in our close relationships like utilitarian objects, that becomes a problem. Because like I said, with that sort of demonic cosmology, it's all too easy to begin to manipulate each other when we treat each other from a place of transactional self-interest. At its very best, a morality based on transactional self-interest is a morality of law and order. It's a morality that says if it's against the law, it's wrong, and if it's legal, then it's right. And it should be obvious what the limitations of that are, because oftentimes the law is wrong. And the only right thing to do is to disobey it. But if your morality is built on a transaction, you have no vision for a law that can somehow be judged as immoral. E even worse, if your morality is built on transactional self-interest, then you have no use whatsoever for those who are suffering. People who are poor are of no use to you. People who are marginalized cannot advance your own self-interests. People who are oppressed can do nothing for you. And so it's helpful, I think, that Job asks this question from a place of suffering. The question is not just, what's the point of living a good life, if it doesn't, or living of being good if I, if I don't get a good life out of it, but also how do we make sense of suffering in our world and do something about it if our morality is built entirely on my own self-interests? This is my question for myself. This is my question for you. What's the point of being good if you get nothing out of it?
How do we respond to Job? What are the limitations of a morality that simply stays within the boundaries of law and order? How can we as a community lean into a bigger vision for a life of wisdom and morality that is transformational, not transactional? I want to invite the band to come up and lead us in a little bit more worship and ask that you continue to reflect on that question while we sing together. Joey? Thank you, Jason. As you were ministering to us today, I kept asking myself, how many times has Satan asked God about me? Like, Is that Joey really? Does he really have faith in you? Let me go test him. Anybody else have that feeling in their lives? That at times God just sort of it feels like, where are you in the midst of all of this? But we are called through this teaching and through what we're doing right now in, in, in this season of faith and coming back into a place of, of community to have faith. And so we're going to do that song that I wrote, Call on God, one more time, because that's what we're trying to get everybody, me included, to learn to do. So would you stand? I know that you can sing this with us. It's real simple. It says, move my feet. Move my feet and guide my hands for you. Move my feet and guide my hands for you. Come on, let me hear you. Move my feet and guide my hands for you. Move my feet and guide my hands for you. Now let's sing, God lead me. The strength I have within, oh God, lead me, lead me, I pray. Now pray, God, free me. God, free me to live the way of light and love and justice, oh God, free me from restraints that I put on We've got to call on God today. Pray God heal me. Oh God help me. Now we've got to call on God today. Oh God heal me. Man this broken spirit with your grace. One more time. Sing with us. God, heal me. Mend this broken spirit with your grace. 
again. But this time I want you to clap with me and I'm going to show you how to clap. Here's how it goes. Move your hands. I see some of y'all like half clapping. Come on. Move my feet and guide my hands for you. Move my feet and guide my hands for you. Move my feet and guide my hands for you. Move my feet and guide my hands for you. Pray God lead me. God free me. songs, which is my way of taking credit for this song, by the way. Um, but I, I, I do want to point out that uh, this song is really appropriate for this series. Because to call on God, to cry out to God is a response to suffering. This week I found myself reflecting on what it must be like for people who are in a place of real suffering whose understanding of how the world work is, works is being challenged. Uh, because I, I learned this week that a friend, a neighbor of ours who lives on the street, passed away on the street. Her name was Nikki. Nikki had been coming here for help for 10 years. I've known her for seven of those years. And uh, I was really heartbroken this week when I found out that she died on the street. And what I want to sort of say in response to that is we can't have a vision 
for something better than that if we stay stuck in our conventional wisdom. We stay stuck in a morality of self-interest. Because Nikki had nothing to offer according to the rules of conventional wisdom. But according to the rules of transformational wisdom, Nikki was more than what she owned. Nikki was more than the house that she lived in. She was more than her ability to be productive in society. She was a human being made in God's image. We need a vision for morality that's bigger than just our own self-interest. If that's not a reason to call on God, I don't know what is. So would you just pray with me as we go today? Father, we thank you for this opportunity for us to gather, to reflect, to pray, to worship. We ask that you would free us and guide us into a place of transformational wisdom. That you guide our hands and feet for a purpose bigger than ourselves. Pray all that in Jesus' name. What is it we say at the end? May the peace of God be with you. God bless you guys. Have a great week.